Our reading is found in the book of Genesis, and we're reading chapter 17 together. And this evening, I'd like to look at this portion of scripture with you. As we continue in our studies in the life of Abraham, we once again have come to a covenant chapter. Now, just to remind you, a covenant is an agreement that's made between two parties of equal stature. And both parties pledge that they will either do something or not do something or risk serious consequences for failing to uphold their part of the promise. But as you can imagine, that's a big problem when we're dealing with God, who is the almighty creator, the one who created the world and all that's in it, and sinful human beings. And so when we're looking at a biblical covenant, it's not a covenant that's made between two equals. We're looking at a unilateral or a one-way covenant where God promises that he will do something. It's a covenant that is entirely based upon who God is and what his will is. And this covenant can never, ever fail. So if you want just a little example of a covenant that we find within the Bible that you would recognize today, think of Noah as he walked out of the ark and God said, I will never, ever wipe this earth out with water and judgment. And as a sign of this, I will give you a rainbow. That was God making a covenant for Noah and for us as those as believers. And we see that rainbow in the sky and we can see that that covenant is still true. And so God, once again in this chapter, is making a covenant with Abraham. Now, if when we read this, this all sounded really familiar to you, then that's good. Um, You might have listened to what I said the previous few times as we went through chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 15, which are also covenant chapters. And those chapters have exactly the same promises that we find in this chapter. Promises where God says to Abraham, I will give you an heir. I will give you a promised land. And I will bless you and your descendants. So perhaps you might start as we come to this chapter to wonder, well, we've heard this three times now why in these over these five chapters is scripture so repetitive Um, and is my sermon going to be the same as the one I did last time well let me assure you I wish it could have been because I wouldn't have had to prepare as much but it's not there is so much that we can find in this chapter we have fresh details and the Lord in this chapter is building upon promises he's previously made and he's showing Abraham the bigger picture of what he has in store for him. But it is worth considering why the scriptures do repeat themselves. Why, if you've read through it, you can find certain promises that are repeated over and over again. Sometimes they're done in different ways, um, but it's the same promise, ultimately, when you look at them. Well, first of all, we can rule out the fact that the biblical authors were not just padding out and shorter stuff to say. It wasn't like me writing my English essay with a word count. Peter, in his second letter, made it quite clear that all these authors in the Bible were inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit in what they wrote. So these are God's words, and it's God's desire that we should see these things several times. And I think actually when we stop to consider why these things are repeated, it's quite obvious, isn't it? The Sovereign Lord, he knows our nature. He knows what we're like. He knows our ability to forget his wonderful promises. 
and our need for constant reassurance. And the Bible, as a result, is repeating wonderful truths to us. So we are sure of these things, that we can build our lives upon it. And it was the case for Abraham. He may have been a great man of faith, but he still experienced the same feelings that we ourselves do um, to this day. I'll just illustrate to you what I mean. I distinctly remember once telling Nellie that I loved her. It was about two years ago. The memory, it's etched on my mind, and as far as I'm concerned, this has not changed. But in our two years of marriage, I've learned that apparently it's not acceptable to never tell her that again. It's not that I've said it once and that's it. I still love her, that fact has not changed. But throughout any life, circumstances arise, difficulties come, and that can lead people to doubt, can't it? Reminding people of your love, maybe be more specific about the details of your love by dealing specific aspects or looking into certain things, is something that helps to create a stronger relationship. And this is because you have that knowledge that whatever happens, that love is still there. Whatever trials have been, there is still that love. And it's also the case with our faith. There are times maybe when we're walking in life and our faith can seem so strong. It's so easy to see God's big picture for us. It's easy to read the Bible. It's easy to pray. It seems that nothing can knock us from this path. We're just going to keep going in this state of a close walk with God. Nothing will knock us sideways. But how often is it actually that before long, all of a sudden out of the blue, things change, perhaps Sin comes into our life. There's a temptation that appears from nowhere. And we slip and we slide away from that strength that we once had in our relationship. And doubt and dullness of faith fill us instead. We need to hear God's word again. We need to be told the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to raise us back up to where we were before. The hymn writer in the last hymn that we're going to sing... um, or read this evening, puts it like this. He says, tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. And so this wonderful truth that we're going to look at in chapter 17, this repetition, it actually leads us to our first point, which is that God never abandons his people. If we think about where Abraham was before the Lord appeared to him in this first verse, It's just worth remembering his situation and what had gone on in his life until this point. Chapter 15, he had visibly witnessed God come down and signing the covenant with him. He'd seen the back of God. He'd seen what would happen if God broke his promise. He'd had this wonderful sign given to him. And yet, as we turn into chapter 16, the very next event that we have recorded for his life, we see a very sad Um, cycle of events that occurred which led to Abraham listening to his wife Sarai his advice and fathering a baby boy with her maid Hagar and that baby boy who was born was to be Ishmael this might have been perfectly acceptable in the eyes of society at the time but this was sinful and contrary to God's will and to his word and one of the consequences of this was that there was much unhappiness and bitterness and strife that came into his household. And so much so that we read in chapter 16 that Sarai's new bitterness and harsh treatment of Hagar 
caused her maidservant to run away. She fled back towards her homeland of Egypt. But we then see that the angel of the Lord intervened. And on her journey, he intercepted her. And he said, Hagar, go back. You need to be in Abraham's household. I will give you these promises of safekeeping. Your son will be blessed if he's in Abraham's household. You will be safe. And we're told then that Hagar returned. But we would be very mistaken and very naive if we think that all of a sudden everything in that household was perfect. There were still underlying tensions. There was still great difficulty. If you go to chapter 21, just for proof of that, um, Hagar and Ishmael are thrown out of the household. Um, verse 9, when Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. There was still tension, there was still great unhappiness in this household. That had been 13 years previous to verse 1. For 13 years since the birth of Ishmael, Abraham had lived in this household. And he was now 99. There was no sign of any other child, and Ishmael remained his only heir. And for Abraham, who had enjoyed some special experiences of meeting the Lord, this had been 13 normal years. He had not received any other special communication from God. Spurgeon put it like this. He said, All these 13 years, so far as Scripture informs us, Abraham had not had a single visit from his God. We do not find any record of his either doing anything memorable or having so much as a single audience with the Most High. But the Lord's word in verse 1, they came to him all of a sudden, and he said, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I think perhaps a better translation of the word blameless means to be whole or fully committed. God was saying to Abraham, walk before me and be fully committed. And then verse 2 tells us, um, he goes on to tell Abraham what his promise was. But this command from the Lord to Abraham to be wholly committed shows that in this time, Abraham's faith had been dull. His walk with God had not been fully committed and in the manner that the Lord would have him to have been in. This had been 13 years of spiritual dullness from Abraham. Now, I don't want you to confuse spiritual dullness with spiritual blindness. It's quite easily done, perhaps. The Bible tells us that all of humanity is born into spiritual blindness. Romans 3, verse 11 says, There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. This is spiritual blindness. And a believer's conversion experience is when that spiritual blindness is removed. God comes into their lives. He makes them aware of their sins. And he shows them the need of the Savior. He shows them the solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. And shows them that they have to repent and believe on him. That is when spiritual blindness disappears. Spiritual dullness, on the, hand, on the other hand, is only something that can occur in those who are believers. If your eyes have not been opened spiritually, then you are still blind. You cannot be spiritually dull. But the believer can be spiritually dull. And this means that he is not filled with the fullness of God's Spirit. He's become dull and familiar, perhaps, might be the word, with the glorious truths of the Bible. 
There has been a failure to apply the whole of his body and his mind to continuing to progress in God's grace and will. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, when the Apostle John was writing to the church at Ephesus in verses 3 to 5, he laid this charge before them. He says, You have persevered and have patience and have laboured for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. They hadn't lost their salvation, but these people had grown dull. And dullness is something that affects our walk with God. It affects our sanctification, that is, the process where we become more mature, where we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one of the biggest threats that there is to the believer. Nevertheless, what we see from this chapter is that there's a comforting truth. Despite how dull we might become, God does not abandon his people. He doesn't abandon his people because the zeal is not like it once was before. Thirteen years after Abraham had sinned and this dullness had come into his life, he appears before Abraham and he intervenes in his life. And his first words to Abraham in verse 1 are this, I am almighty God. In the, um, if you have a margin in your Bible, it might, have, it might say, instead of almighty God, El Shaddai, which means the God who pours out blessings, the God who gives richly, the abundantly and abundantly. I am the God who gives abundantly. And then he tells Abraham what is expected of him. Because of this, you must walk wholeheartedly before me. There was no room for dullness or half-heartedness in their relationship. And the Bible is full of interventions from God where he comes into people's lives. For Abraham, this was just another day, but suddenly, unexpectedly, and without invitation, and despite what he'd done, God broke into Abraham's life. The Lord didn't ask for his permission, but he burst through this stillness of faith. Or he can burst through the spiritual blindness that we might be in. And he proclaims, I am God Almighty, walk before me. If you would like another example of where this happened, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses had been in the wilderness for 40 years. After he'd murdered the Egyptian taskmaster, he'd fled into the desert. And we have a few verses that describe 40 years of Moses' life where he was just content to dwell in the desert. But in chapter 3 of Exodus, we read of the Lord God appearing to Moses, suddenly in the middle of the desert, in the middle of a burning bush. The Lord took the initiative. He's a God of love and grace. And his word renews our focus. It helps to increase our faith and our understanding about the infinite God. And his interventions, we sometimes think of them as being things that are rather dramatic and painful, things that shock us back to where we should be. But often, when God intervenes in our lives, it's done in a very gentle and loving manner. If you remember the Apostle Peter, he experienced a gentle recommissioning back to fullness of faith. After his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'd slunk back to his old life 
as a fisherman, and he was just content to do that. He'd forgotten everything. But if you look at John chapter 21, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his risen form, he appeared to Peter, and he recommissioned him. And I'd just like to, rather than going through the whole thing, read the final few words that our Lord spoke to him. And he said, And when he had spoken this, he, that is Jesus, said to him, that's Peter, follow me. Abraham was told, walk with me. Peter, when the Lord came to him, said, follow me. That's where the healthy Christian is, walking with God and following him. And as I say, for us in these days, God's interventions are often a lot more gentle. Um, they're often maybe through a word of scripture that we hear or we've read and it just leaps out of the page and the Holy Spirit presses it upon our heart. Perhaps we might be given a tract by someone or when we're in prayer suddenly the Spirit comes upon us or even someone says something to us that reawakens that zeal and desire. God has his ways of using others or any situation to bring us back to where he would have us be. And when we find ourselves in these situations, there is only ever one acceptable response, and that's total submission to God. If you look at Abraham, Abraham rather, in verse 3, look what he did. He fell on his face, and he listened to God. That was a sign from Abraham of reverence to God, of submitting himself to God, and honouring the Lord for who he was. So the Lord came and he talked to him. And for our second point, I'd just like to look at the things in this chapter which are new additions to the covenant that he'd already made with Abraham. And the first thing that really strikes us is found in verse 5, where the Lord changes Abraham's name from Abraham to Abraham, which for a preacher is fantastic because I can now say Abraham and not train myself to say Abraham all the time. And he says this in verse 5, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. We often forget that names in the Bible had a very deep significance, far deeper than the meaning we put on them today. I might be Stephen, which means crown or wreath. Um, I don't have a crown or wreath. I, you'll have to ask my mother the reasons for my name. But in the Bible, we can learn so much from people's names. And if we particularly look at what Abraham's name was changed from and to, we can see that there's a far deeper significance than you could get if you just skimmed through. Um, the name Abraham means a father of many. Now, no doubt for a man who was childless, a man who really hurt from this fact, a man who was now 100 nearly, um, this name would have caused him great pain. Perhaps people had rather... Um, being cruel to him about it. It was almost an insult, wasn't it, for this man to bear the name Abraham, a father of many. But the Lord came to him and says, I'm going to call you Abraham. And the meaning of the name is given in the last part of verse 5. For you will be a father of many nations. Can you understand how this simple name change was such a challenge of Abraham's faith? To tell everybody that God has told me that my name is now Abraham was in effect increasing the burden and the pressure on his faith. His, he was accepting God at his word. He was accepting and showing by changing his name that he had an 
utter dependency upon God, even at the age of 99, that he would become a father of many nations and that he had a complete confidence in who he was. And it's not unique to Abraham that names were changed for reasons. We think of, well, we thought of Peter who was restored earlier, but can you remember that moment when the Lord spoke to him in Matthew chapter 16 after he'd made that great confession of faith? Um, Matthew 16, um, when he'd said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, then in verse 17, Jesus had answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Peter, which means rock. This is the same Peter who ran away when he was confronted by a little servant girl, when the going got tough. And yet the Lord said, you are going to be the rock. You are going to be one of the greatest workers and establishers of the early church. Um, as we discover. Peter, the one who faced martyrdom, knowing that it was coming, as 2 Peter tells us. God is the one who takes us, and he changes our name. Sarah's name was also changed from Sarai to Sarah, and it just contains a slightly higher standing and status as the name Sarah than Sarai. But every time these people had their new name spoken, their mind would be taken to God and of what he had done for them. And do you realise that this is actually true of all believers? Although our birth names obviously don't change, do they? God does give his children new names. The believer is now called a child of God. He's called his elect, his precious, his beloved. We're called righteous, chosen, bride, pure, redeemed, partaker... I looked it up. There are 640 different names in the Bible whereby God refers to his children that he uses for them. And so that would be a detailed Bible study if we ever went there. But if you think of some of these names that we are called by, God's elect, his precious, they might be names that seem crazy to the world. For everyone who called Abraham, Abraham before the son of promise was born, it was a crazy name for a 99-year-old childless man. But it was a name that was ultimately proven true. And so, do our lives reflect the names that God has given us? Are we his bride? Are we partaking of his promise? And does it reflect upon our total reliance on him? The next covenant promise that we see in verse 6, the thing that is added to it, is found at the end of verse 6. Speaking of his descendants, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Not only was Abraham to be a father to many people, but he was to be a father to many kings. And more specifically in this point, the Lord had to clear up Abraham's understanding that it wouldn't be through Hagar and Ishmael that the kings would come, but through Sarah. If we look at verse 15 to 19, I'll just read these verses again as the Lord spoke to Abraham. He says, Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations and kings of people shall be from her. 
Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And it's worth noting this laughter wasn't one of cynicism, like, ha ha, very good. It was laughter of sheer amazement, incomprehension at what God was doing, the vast scope of his promises. And so Abraham laughed and he said, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 18, Abraham still thought that Ishmael was going to be the one who the Lord worked through. He seems to have loved Ishmael dearly and genuinely, but the Lord has to say to him again in verse 19, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. For the first time, Abraham also had a time scale. Nearly 25 years earlier, the Lord had appeared to him and said, you will have a son. Now the Lord says to him, one year from now, in verse 21, next year, you will have a son and you will call him Isaac. But there is also an aspect which we could perhaps skip over, and that's the mercy of God that can be seen in his um, dealings with Ishmael and what his descendants would enjoy. These people who were going to to be um, enemies to Isaac's descendants, they still experienced the common grace of God. They had goodness and other blessings that we live under in this world. Isaac was going to benefit from the full covenant, from all of God's promises. But let us remember how merciful God is that all people benefit from his common grace. And that all people um, who are his, when they have the full blessing, will have this land that he promised to them, this heavenly Canaan, the everlasting possession, and the promise that he is their God. But the unbeliever still has goodness in this life. And Abraham listened to these promises. He must have known them so well. He listened to the expansions of them. And I think, once again, he must have been made aware of how God never changes. His character is always the same. His loyalty to his people is always the same, despite their weaknesses, despite what he had done in chapter 16. He'd promised as well that he would be the same God to Abraham's descendants as he was being to him. Our God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you turn back again to Exodus 3... As the Lord recommissioned Moses in the burning bush, it's interesting to note in verse 6 how he introduces himself to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And we're told Moses hid his face and was afraid to look upon the Lord. The name that God used there, I am the God of Abraham, and I never change for him, I never change for Isaac and Jacob, How reassuring was that for Moses, especially after what he'd done, to hear that the never-changing God was coming and recommissioning him. And so although we may find our lives are tossed to and fro, things come into our lives, things are taken, we struggle, the believer knows and must always be reminded that God never changes. He is the eternal, unchanging God, and that there can be great comfort from this. The final um, thing that we might see as new in this chapter is 
the Lord's command to Abraham to circumcise himself and all those who were within his household. In verse 10, he said to Abraham, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. In all God's speakings and dealings with Abraham, this was the very first time that Abraham had been told to do something in regard to their covenant. It wasn't something that Abraham offered to do. It was the first time that the Lord had said, you should do something. Until this moment, the Lord had been setting the terms, telling Abraham what he would do. But now Abraham was instructed to begin this practice. He was to cut away the flesh of his foreskin, and he was to do the same for every newborn male that came into his household when they were eight days old. Not only was his name changed from Abraham to Abraham, but he would also now see this mark on his flesh, this mark that signified that he had no confidence in the flesh. His faith was to come into every single aspect of his life. There was a permanent sign on his body that he could see all the time, and there was his name that had been changed. Nothing could be withheld from God. This part of his body from whence his failure in, verse, in chapter 16 rather had come was also to be the part of his body for where great hope came from in the son Isaac. And it's a massive topic, is circumcision. Um, so great that I didn't look into it in too much detail because I would have kept you here for a long time. I just want to draw your attention to one very simple matter relating to circumcision, one that you're probably very aware of, but... That is this, that circumcision was not what saved Abraham or made him part of God's covenants. Paul spoke about this in great detail in Romans chapter 4. He said, Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. So therefore, it wasn't circumcision that saved him. It wasn't circumcision that brought him into God's covenants. But what's interesting to note, if you look at the end of verse 14, is this. The uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So circumcision didn't bring Abraham into God's covenant. But if he'd have rejected circumcision, then he was also rejecting God's covenant. And so his faith was what led him to do what he went on and did and circumcised himself. Faith leads to obedience, whatever the situation you find yourself in. Joshua chapter 5, after Joshua crossed the River Jordan, he had no way back. He had the city of Jericho and all the inhabitants of Canaan in front of him. And you would think, right, he's going to go on an attack. But what do we read he did in Joshua chapter 5? He circumcised the entire army in front of his enemies. He incapacitated this entire fighting force of people because Joshua understood that if they were to walk in the Lord in a wholehearted and blameless manner, if they wanted to experience his blessings and his being with them, for success in their ventures, obedience was absolutely essential, even if it didn't make sense to everyone who was looking on. This was what God's covenant was with Abraham if you look you see the words my covenant my covenant my covenant repeated nine times in this chapter these were the Lord's terms and they were his because he is sovereign Isaac was to be heir not Ishmael 
Sarah and Abraham had absolutely no say in this. God's word is final. When we come before him, as we read our Bible then, let's remember that we're doing so on his terms and not ours. He is not a God who is there to fill a gap in our lives or to be the God that we would have him to be, pick and choose. He is a God who comes to take control of every single aspect of our life, be it our names and our identity or how we live our lives and control ourselves with our flesh. Everything has to be changed according to his will. To not surrender any parts of our lives is to rebel against him. Um, There was a rich young ruler who couldn't sell all his possessions because it was too hard for him. He rejected the Lord. And so, as we come to our final point, we see that our response to what we hear from God is critical. And let's just look at Abraham's response. And if we see it, it's found from verse 23 onwards. His response was total submission, and I think more importantly, action. We're told in verse 23, Abraham took Ishmael his son and all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham did as instructed, he did it promptly, and he did it in total obedience. There was no procrastination, there was no fussing around, there was no having to pray about it or or sort of speak in very holy terms of what he might do and what he feel led by to do. God had spoken. He had made it clear. He was to obey immediately. Any delay for whatever pious reason he might think up was disobedience. Abraham went out, and that very same day, he carried out the Lord's will. And we have to be made ready to make changes in our lives, however painful they might be, when the Lord comes to us. In Psalm 119, verse 59 to 60, the psalmist wrote this. He said, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Abraham had not been abandoned by God because of his sin. God's desire for his people is to separate them from their sins. This work of sanctification, it's an ongoing process. And it's where God intervenes in our life to bring about change. As we've seen, God breaks through our dullness and our slowness of thought. And in his grace and his mercy, he brings us to the place that he would have us be. As we look through the Bible and look at the lives of some of these great saints, which we've been doing in Hebrews 11, we learn more about him. Our understandings are enlarged and our eyes are opened. And we are brought to a new maturity. And so what we can learn from this is that a person is justified by faith, but they need to become established. And that requires action or works on the believer's behalf. As James chapter 2 really highlights for us, works and actions follow faith. James 2, I think, verse 26 is the verse that says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith is also so faith without works is also dead abraham when he was confronted with god's word he knew what he wanted he had this theoretical knowledge 
but it also had to be made practical. And when God comes into people's lives, he alters them permanently. He changes us, he changes our character, what we want to do. Sometimes he takes us so far out of our comfort zone that it hurts. And this is really symbolized in Abraham's circumcision, the way he willingly went forward with what God commanded for him. The believer's life has God's marks on it. What follows this chapter and Abraham's obedience within the next year of his life was God bringing to fruition everything that he said he would do. All the promises that had been made 25 years ago, Abraham started to see that God was indeed true to his word. But Abraham had had to do as the Lord instructed before he could see that that which is impossible to man is possible to the sovereign God. So as we reflect upon this chapter, we have to ask ourselves this. Are we walking in obedience to God's command? Are we walking wholeheartedly in his ways? And when he's confronting us, are we doing his bidding? Are we doing those things which are painful, those things which change us, those things that we perhaps might of our own um, own thoughts not want to do? Or are we submitting every part of our lives to him? Because as Abraham learnt, as Moses learnt, as Joshua learnt, blessings only follow submission and total obedience to God's commands.